and welcome to the Swiss Connection. I'm Susan Masika. This week, all eyes have been on a group of 150 people who arrived in Geneva. They're there to try to work out the next steps for Syria, where war has raged for nearly a decade. In another Inside Geneva edition of our podcast, we're asking, can these talks in Switzerland lead to peace in Syria? Host Imogen Folks and analyst Daniel Warner joined representatives from peace-building institutions in Geneva to discuss the ins and outs of the gathering. Who is or isn't invited? What does that mean for a possible deal? And can there be lasting peace in Syria without justice for the atrocities committed during the war? Here's Imogen. Welcome again to Inside Geneva, the podcast. I'm Imogen Folks, and our topic today is a hopeful one, we hope, conflict resolution and sustainable peace building. Our guests, as ever, our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Then we have René Larivière, who's Director of Programmes at Interpeace, and Keith Krauser, who's Director of the Centre on Conflict Development and Peacebuilding at Geneva's Graduate Institute. The reason we chose that subject is because as we sat down in the studio today, another step, we hope, towards peace in Syria is about to happen. The long-awaited Constitutional Committee is going to meet and UN Envoy Geer Peterson seems to be optimistic. Before we start our discussions, let's just have a little listen at what he had to say. I do believe that the Constitutional Committee's launch should be a sign of hope for the long-suffering Syrian people. So a note of optimism, but he was then very quick to qualify it. The Constitutional Committee alone cannot and will not resolve the Syrian conflict. The Constitutional Committee can only really matter as a step in the right direction, a step along the difficult path out of this conflict and towards a new Syria. Syrian-owned, Syrian-led, he said, but just a first step. Looking at these peace negotiations, it's 150 people. Incredibly complex. Rene, maybe start with you. This seems to be incredibly unwieldy to me, 150 people to try and negotiate some form of peace, or at least a constitution. I think that's partially right, uh, because just the logistics of bringing 150 people together to discuss matters uh, of peace negotiations and the constitutional uh, reforms uh, is just a, a logistical nightmare if we, we can imagine that, but it can be achieved. I mean, uh, I think we still have to be hopeful that uh, there is at least an alternative option being pursued because so far everything that's been done for the last eight years also hasn't worked. So I do want to be slightly hopeful that this could be something else that we look at because everything else has failed so far and the war continues uh, on the ground. What do you think, Keith? I mean, we know peace negotiations are, are never easy, but again, this seems, to an outsider anyway, overcomplicated. Well, it, it's a curious hybrid. There's lots of examples of constitutional committees and constitutional conventions after a peace has been put in place. And there's lots of examples of peace negotiations to end the ongoing violence. There are very few where the constitutional committee or negotiations occurs as part of the making of the peace. And as Rene said, there's still violence going on. 
even if Syria had not had a war, it's very difficult to imagine a constitutional convention of this sort in a country that's been under authoritarian rule for so long. Danny, you uh, you were putting your hand up to speak there, and I know before we came on air, you were pointing out that this is the fourth envoy for Syria in eight and a half years. His predecessors didn't have a whole lot of success. Well, I'm fascinated by who's coming to the party. You should always ask who's not invited. Members of the government, and we go back to the Obama administration not supporting Assad, thinking there should be regime change, members of the opposition and civil society. But Turkey is not coming to the table. Iran's not coming to the table. Russia's not coming to the table. Their foreign ministers are all in Geneva right now, theoretically not taking part, but they're That's here. right. And the United States. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that Mr. Trump withdrew American forces, and traditionally the United States has had something to say about that region. So I'm trying to see how, of the 150 people, how they're going to get involved with people from the outside who are not Syrians. The UN has spent years building this committee, determined that it should be Syrian-owned. Doesn't that give it more legitimacy? I think it does, because if peace is going to be sustainable, it does have to have what we call in our language uh, local ownership. And that means that Syrians need to be present. However, in this context, I think the geopolitics are so dominant that it's like climbing Mount Everest. Uh, for this Without a Sherpa. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's well put, actually. Yeah. Or oxygen. <laughs> or oxygen. <laughs> right. But there are also people who aren't at the table from within Syria, too. So it's not just that there are outside geopolitical parties, but there are potential spoilers from different armed groups who don't even need to be named, uh, or people who have large caches of weapons who may be able to use them, who are clearly not part of these conversations and can play a, a significant spoiler role, whatever the outcome. Well, when we look a bit history then, because this is a city, the UN here in Geneva, it's, it's not new to diplomacy and peace negotiations. There have been many held here, some successful, some not. What can we... Has anybody got any examples from the past we could learn from? Well, I mean, if you look at Richard Holbrook at the end of the day to end the Balkan Wars, he brought people to the United States, closed them in an army base and said, you're going to sign this or you're not getting out. So he was the leader of those discussions. And in that sense, if it's the United States, if it's Russia, if it's someone else, there has to be some form of leadership here. And I doubt whether the United Nations, Mr. Peterson, can give that kind of leadership or exert enough pressure. But it's not the UN style to lock people in a room and say, sort of, I mean, let's let's be honest. <laughs> I, think, I think that's uh, true. There's nothing magical about the air in Geneva, though, that guarantees uh, people talks. And in the Syrian case, as in any of the other cases in the Middle East right now, whether it's Libya or whether it's others, the, the local actors are so powerful. Um, they control the economy, they control the army, they control all sorts of resources, and to some extent their allies, that will make it very difficult for any external party to have sufficient pressure, whether it's Russia or the United States or even Iran. I think many people overestimate the power of the external actors. Renee, you wanted to say something? Yeah, actually, I think maybe Geneva is not always conducive for peace talks because it is a nice environment. You come here, you stay at the uh, five-star hotel next door, and it's the political elite that come. I mean, it's, it's a business. It's a livelihood to be in peace negotiations. And they're often not representative of all the parties that should be coming at, around the table. 
in one of the South African cases where they held mediation efforts in South Africa, they actually had to essentially cut off the hotel and the bill and say, you have to come up with a deal because we're sending you home. You're a little too comfortable. It happened with the FARC in Havana. (laughs) I I wanted to come back to the notion of being inclusive. Keith, you mentioned that not all people are at the table. What about the Kurds? I mean, when you think about this, the Kurds were in a given area. They have now supposedly been driven from that area. This is a group that has 25 million people. They're always (laughs) losing in these kinds of situations. What's going to happen to them? Are they represented? Do they have a role to play in this constitution? And I think in that sense, it's not being totally inclusive of who should be at the table. Is inclusivity then fundamental? Because I think a lot of people will look at the fact that if the guns fall silent, which they haven't in Syria yet, but if they do, that's it. Great, we've got peace. It's not as simple as that, is it, Renee? No, and actually I love referring to the example from Colombia. There was a referendum, as we know, on the peace agreement, and it was rejected. Now, why, why was that? And one of, okay, there were domestic issues at play between Santos and the far right, but put that aside for a minute and think about the public outcry. Why did the public reject the referendum? And part of that, if you think about it, if you're a victim and almost every person in Colombia has a brother, a family member, or a friend that's been affected by the conflict, the civil war, when FARC apologized during the signing of the peace agreement, it said it was sorry for the pain it may have caused during all of these years. And that half apology didn't go unnoticed. And the public was also not prepared. When I was in Colombia in the months leading up to the agreement, the public was very ill-informed about the, the peace agreements. And imagine if you're a victim and the perpetrators of violence are signing a peace agreement that's going to determine how reparations will be made. I wouldn't accept it either if I were a victim. No, but that is going to be a huge, huge problem, not just in the Syria conflict, but in many, isn't it? Because everybody could say they've got a problem with one of the other groups. There are so many different armed groups now and so much anger and suffering and and bitterness behind this long experience of war. Well, one of the flaws of many peace agreements that don't uh, stick is that they are essentially elite bargains among competing groups who divide up the spoils. And I'm quite sure that the Syrian actors, the major opposition groups and the government, are capable of doing that. Um, uh, The Syrian state controls the economy. You can divide up the resources, ministries. You can do all sorts of things like that. But that's not going to satisfy any claims for justice or reparations or reconciliation, um, which is not even on the table as far as I can tell. No, and I think this is something I remember always that uh, former... Human Rights Commissioner Zaid used Mm. to say that there is no sustainable peace without justice. justice. And I come back to Assad. I mean, Obama was clear, no use of chemical weapons, the famous red line. Is the international community, forget the United States for a moment, is the international community going to accept a peace where Assad will remain in office? And will there be some kind of trial for him or for the government about what they did. And this is the danger of just saying the fighting has stopped. Okay, now we have to accept what it is because it's better than everything else. Well, 
we know what um, some of the other international players say in this is that it's not up for the to the international community to decide who leads Syria. This is constitutional committee is supposed to be at least trying to get to grips with this. Cynical looks all round. <laughs> supposed to be trying to get to grips with this. You know, Syria has been described by uh, some Middle East analysts as a fierce state, right, with one of the most effective... Uh, and violent intelligence apparatuses uh, around the world. So uh, insofar as there are people associated with these talks, civil society members, the third sector, or whatever, uh, they would be very concerned about personal safety, safety mm -hmm. of their communities, uh, and nobody is going to point a finger at Assad, um, I think, in this context, because that's a dangerous thing to do uh, for, for many of these people, unless you are ready part of the uh, regime's network. Um, and so I think that raises some, some issues about uh, the fig leaf of local ownership here, where, of course, if Syrians, 150 of them, agree that under some formula Assad should remain in power um, and decentralize, whatever, then that will be seen as good enough for the international community to say, well, Syrians have accepted this. But isn't there a distinction, Keith, between a peace treaty or some kind of peace agreement and a constitutional committee? I mean, it seems to me that they're kind of getting ahead of themselves. We don't have peace, so how can you have a constitution? You're right, actually, because it's the same thing with elections. After a peace agreement, often we just waive elections or constitutional reforms, thinking that's going to be the solutions. But these issues are very divisive because elections is all about the winner. So the constitution is also similar. We're putting the... Is it the... the cart ahead of the donkey. But I think we have to look also uh, at transitions. And maybe we won't have a peace deal immediately, but maybe think about a transition. And I think in Libya, for example, that was one of the, um, after the, I mean, after the NATO forces came in, the fall of Gaddafi, etc., I think it should have had a transitional period because we were imposing democracy immediately on a population that was really not ready for that. And I think Syria, I think personally, would benefit also from thinking about hybrid models or transition periods. Those come with dangers, of course. They're not fully guaranteed. But I think we need to think alternatively and not just about the Western model of once you have a piece of paper and um, the photo op is finished, the piece is here. It's well, it's, it, it, there is no real precedent to show it works that well, so why should we keep thinking about it? It's, it's one of the things. I wanted to ask you, Danny, because I know you were quite recently in Sarajevo, and we've we, you mentioned Dayton, and we've talked about not just you know resolving a conflict, but building a sustainable peace, and that's something else that I think when our our attention turns away and and we journalists drift away to a new war. There's a long, hard road to go, and I think you saw some of that, didn't you? There's a tremendously hard road. There was a school outside of Sarajevo where on the outside, the right-hand part of the school was painted in yellow, and the left side was painted in green. And the school itself was divided between Bosnians and Croats. Mm -hmm. so, so in a sense, to say that they're not killing each other, that the war has ended, the agreement at Dayton was provisional. Uh, and there are other things about collective memory, about getting through certain problems that I sense the tensions still there. 
Uh, but then uh, transition, how long does the transition take? Uh, in the United States, it's been 100 years since the Civil War, and still in the South, they called me a damn Yankee. Uh, in 19... Which you are. <laughs> <laughs> you said that first. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should also ask ourselves uh, this idea of sustainable peace. What, was Syria at peace in 2010? Depends how you define peace. For us looking out, said, oh, well, nobody's fighting. Yeah, sure, that's fine. We were paying very little yes. attention, I suppose, to the, the what the state was doing to its citizens. But it was a, a terribly repressive state <laughs> with large numbers of people imprisoned uh, and tortured and other such things. Uh, Assad's father is very well known for the uh, so-called Hama rules, which were the massacres of, of Islamists uh, now a couple of decades ago. And there's this idea that the status quo ante was peaceful is, I think, problematic uh, in a case such as Syria. So maybe people's expectations are not that high. <laughs> Give this as a silver lining, but anything that gets us back to a, a situation of not rampant violence and they can get on with their lives would be at least as good as what they had before. Yeah, but Keith, are you implying that a dictator autocrat is better than some form of opposition? No. I mean, no. <laughs> you know, but look at the no. Rwanda. It's mm. a very secure state. There's absence of violence. Can we say that there's peace? Sometimes I've been in a few, reported from a few conflict zones, and sometimes, and especially talking to women, what I sense is, please, 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 can I just open the door and let my kids go to school and know they're going to come home and be able to go and buy some food? These things are actually quite important. It's maybe not total peace, but it might be a start. Right. Well, I think I come back to the quote about peace and justice. I mean, justice is not simple at all. And sometimes if you have these truth commissions or if you say people before the Human Rights Council or in The Hague, it could cause more problems in a sense in terms of violence and exactly what Imogen, exactly what you were saying. So that whereas we want local ownership, we want democracy, we want certain values, at the end of the day, if you try to push those forward or promote them, it could be counterproductive. Well, and they're not all three consistent. Right. <laughs> Local ownership doesn't always lead you to democracy, certainly doesn't always lead you to liberal values. So I think there are some definite tensions built into this, especially since local ownership usually means that the people who have power locally are the ones who dictate because it seems to me in Syria, the most important thing would be a ceasefire. That would not be just a question of 48 hours, but over a long period of time. And to have a ceasefire, all the parties have to agree, and someone has to supervise. And we don't see anyone willing to come in internationally and say, we'll supervise that. I think that's not on the table at all, I think. That's a, and that's a big problem. Is it on the table? <laughs> I, I think there's going to be more fighting over who gets which bit of land before we get to a ceasefire. Yeah. That's what I sense. Yeah. We are, unfortunately, as ever, approaching, it's flown by, the end of the programme. What I'd like to do, though, is ask each of you to give me either an example of a peace negotiation that really worked or some kind of peace negotiation style that should be completely avoided. Keith, you're casting your eyes to the heavens, so I'm going to start with you. <laughs> it's very hard to find one that uh, has worked. Um, so I think I'm going to go on the, on the other side and say that what you should really avoid uh, is a, a fig leaf for the international community, whether it's 
a constitution or an election or some kind of uh, ceasefire that allows us to wash our hands of it and let the local people live with their consequences. Uh, and that's happened too often. Um, I do think that the road is long and hard. Um, I take some comfort from the Colombian case, um, not because the referendum failed, but because the next one succeeded and because there were successive rounds to bring in different groups over more than a decade. Uh, but that was in a, a country with a, a very well-developed civil society and uh, administrative structure and so there and a lot of international attention. So it's not a perfect example, but it's not a bad one. Um, and it tells you something about how long this will take. Rene. And I think for me, I mean, just building on what Keith was saying, it's all about lessons learned. It wasn't perfect in Colombia, but thankfully, the process was able to adapt as it went forward. And I think that's what's important to remember. I think in Syria, it's my sense is that we're repeating the same errors over and over again and not really learning from the process. Um, there's no cookie cutter approach, unfortunately, because it's all context specific. But there are a lot of lessons learned, and I think Colombia is a recent successful example. Aceh is another one. I think there were many other examples that were initially successful, but as we know in all uh, peace agreements, the data shows um, more or less 50% of them fail very quickly after a signing of a peace agreement. So there's a lot to learn and remember uh, when we consider peace negotiations. Well, we even see, for example, the United Kingdom, something that mm. everybody thought that was set mm. in stone, the Good Friday Agreement, mm -hmm. right. um, something that nobody expected, is, 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 is creating some doubt about it. Danny, final words to you, because I know also you want to tell us, for our listeners who want to know more about this particular subject, there's also Geneva Peace Week. I just wanted to get in. My example, paradoxically, yes. would be Richard Holbrook because mm -hmm. he did stop the fighting in the Balkans with the United States behind it, a huge individual effort. Peace Week coming up November 4th through November 9th uh, in Geneva, sponsored by a platform, and you can look it up on the web, uh, the Peace Week, with lots of NGOs, lots of discussions, but very inclusive as well, people coming from all over the world, an emphasis on civil society. Uh, and I think it's something that's been extremely successful and something, if you're interested in the topic, you should look up the platform and see what's doing and hopefully come to Geneva to see. Well, on that note, thank you all very much, René Larivière, Keith Krause, Daniel Warner, for joining us on Inside Geneva. And I think we can all say um, we wish the 150 participants in Syria's Constitutional Committee and the facilitator, the United Nations, all the luck in the world. That was Imogen Folks leading a discussion on the Syrian peace efforts that are underway in Geneva. Visit us at SwissInfo.ch where we will continue to follow this topic as well as others related to international activity in Geneva. The Swiss Connection is a podcast where we talk to newsmakers based in Switzerland as well as Swiss people living abroad. We produce this program every few weeks, so follow us on Twitter or Facebook for a heads up when the next one comes out. Better yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or another platform to be sure you don't miss any episodes. Thanks for listening, and thank you to studio technician Donnie Wheeler. Signing off for all of us here, I'm Susan Masika. Hello, I'm Imogen Folks from Swiss Info's Inside Geneva podcast. On February 24th, 2022, 
Russia attacked Ukraine. The invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. And during the year-long conflict, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers and civilians, have been killed. Over the past year, a number of episodes of Inside Geneva have looked at the heavy humanitarian toll of the war and its wider implications for the world. We've been joined by historians and international human rights experts to ask about the background to the invasion. We've talked to major UN aid agencies about how the war in Ukraine is impacting other humanitarian crises. And we've asked if sanctions or war crimes investigations can stop or at least limit this conflict. If you're particularly concerned by the war in Ukraine, do listen to these episodes. You can find Inside Geneva, free to listen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all your usual podcast apps.